0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Matt, and today my guest is Payson McKelvin. Payson's a Red Bull and Orange Steel sponsored athlete. He races cross-country and endurance events, travels across the country in his van to race. He's a two-times marathon national champion, a single-speed world champ. He's taken third in Leadville, first in the Firecracker 50, and has a bunch of other race and mountain bike accolades. Is there anything I miss, Payson? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. That That's plenty. <laughs> so going back to the beginnings, how'd you get your start mountain biking?
1: I believe, well, it depends on how you define that. I mean, we we grew up down a dirt road, so kind of everything was mountain biking. But I first got on a bike, I guess, when I was four years old without training wheels. I started going mountain biking on trail probably when I was, I don't know, eight or 10 with my dad. And he had a health issue that made it so that he couldn't ride shortly thereafter. And so riding kind of went away from my life a little bit. And I got more into mainstream sports, primarily basketball and track and field. And then uh, when I was about 14, I had a couple injuries playing basketball that kind of pushed me back towards the bike and uh, haven't looked back since.
0: Um, And so it sounds like your dad played somewhat of a part in getting you into mountain biking.
1: Yeah, absolutely. He actually... Well, he was a, a very successful track and field athlete, primarily a pole vaulter, really high level NCAA athlete. After that, he uh, got into to kayaking and came out to where I live now pretty frequently, long before I was born, uh, the Durango, Colorado, Four Corners area, pretty often to kayak right when that sport was taking off even a little before it was taking off honestly and then kind of as his uh his shoulders got more and more beat up he transitioned more into mountain biking because that was a a sport that was beginning to explode we were actually just talking last night at the dinner table he's here visiting for the iron horse race that's happening this weekend we were just chatting about how uh he was coming out to durango in the early 80s to run rivers and um there were no mountain bikes around at all. He said he didn't see any mountain bikes. There just wasn't a whole lot of outdoor recreation around here yet, period, which I thought was pretty interesting. But anyway, he uh, he eventually started getting into mountain biking and then would come out to this area again to mountain bike. And uh, one of the, the first rides that he did out here was the the White Rim in Moab. And that's one of the things that really set the hook for him. And so then he kind of came back, uh, this was after I was born now, came back to Austin, Texas, where I grew up and where we lived and kind of introduced my family to mountain biking. So it's because of this area that I live in now that I eventually got into mountain biking from kind of in a secondhand way, but it's somewhat fitting that I live here now, I guess.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So you guys, uh, you spent a lot of time growing up in Austin or Texas?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I was born in a kind of... Rural, outside Austin, Texas, about 20 minutes outside of Austin, Texas. Closest town was this very little town called Dripping Springs that is now uh, not such a little town, but yeah, born and raised there uh, in Central Texas. Had aspirations of being a pro mountain biker, though, and um, there's a little bit of a ceiling of uh, how good you can get living in in Central Texas, primarily due to the terrain, Um, and so you know, I, I knew I wanted to move somewhere where I could learn from the best. And in terms of endurance mountain bike racing, um, I mean, half of the top pros, it seems like live in Durango. And there's such a heritage here of, of racing and just strong cycling culture period that um, it was the place to be. So when I was 18, I moved out here to get a degree, but also chase the pro racing dream.
0: So you knew pretty early on that that was like what you wanted to do. You wanted to go to Durango, learn from these pros and become a mountain biker.
1: Yeah, it's funny in hindsight, because I mean, it's perfectly normal for someone in their late teens to have no idea what they want to do. I mean, someone my age now in their mid 20s to have no idea what they want to do. But for whatever reason, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I knew exactly, well, I thought I knew exactly how to do it, or at least the the changes I needed to make to give myself the best shot. And so, yeah, that was to move to Durango, Colorado, kind of jump into the pit of lions of all of these pros that uh, I grew up looking up to and just try to rise to the occasion.
0: How much different was the terrain? Like, is there just a lot less rock in Texas to ride on? Or is it like a big change to get used to riding in Durango?
1: It's actually more rock in central Texas, but it's the the main difference is... uh, and it's still that kind of carries over my my favorite kind of riding, and I guess one of my strength riding, quote unquote, is just kind of a really bony, ledgy, flatter terrain. Just sort of you know smashing through flat rock gardens. I just love that for some reason, and that's that's all Central Texas. We have mountains in Texas, but they're far, far West Texas. It's about an eight hour drive to get to them. So at that point you might as well just drive to Durango. <laughs> um Texas is so big, but the major difference is just the the elevation change and the and the diversity. I mean, in central Texas we have very little dirt and a lot of limestone rock. And here in Colorado and especially the Durango area, the amount of geological diversity is just mind-blowing. And so I mean, you can put a blindfold on and spin around take it off, do that 10 times, and you're going to face 10 different types of yeah. of soil and rock and all that sort of thing. So the result is around town here, we just have an absurd amount of diversity in types of trails. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that, A, it's such a famous mountain biking town, and B, such incredible riders come out of here, just really well-rounded riders. So I had so much to learn. I mean, I came out of Texas feeling pretty good about myself in terms of my abilities, but it, I mean, it took me legitimately years to figure out how to be competitive climbing, how to be competitive in terms of tight or uh, steep descents, steep climbs, switchbacks. I mean, I've barely seen any switchbacks in my life. I was just dismal at, at switchbacks. So there was a lot to learn. But this was definitely, Durango was definitely the place to do it. So you got to
0: Fort Lewis College, you're... 18 I mean, what was it like did you initially just dive straight into the mountain
1: bike team yeah that's kind of a funny story i uh walked into dave hagen the team director's office before the collegiate season started and uh i'm pretty sure i was wearing like my my national team kit to try to impress him you know cuz i'd done it a couple trips to europe with usa cycling and Walk in and, you know, want to talk to him about what it's like to, uh, to be selected for the collegiate national championships team. Cause on a team like Fort Lewis, where there's over a hundred riders, it's pretty competitive just to make that, that six or eight person roster for the national championships to even get to go to the national championships. I was already thinking about how I was going to do in the national championships, let alone whether I was going to make the team. And so I walk into his office and I'm sure I sounded like the, the most cocky, you know, little eighteen-year-old to ever walk into his office, but he politely said, "Yeah, you know, if you make the national championships team, then this is how it will work." Blah blah. And uh, I was pretty fired up, and and won my first ever collegiate race, just like a the regional series, the Rocky Mountain Collegiate Cycling Conference series. I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm totally going to nationals." <laughs> and then over the course of the collegiate season these uh these junior and senior you know seasoned riders just kept coming out of the woodwork and every race you would go to more of these upperclassmen that were really fast just kept coming out of the woodwork and I was like god where are all these people coming from and by the last round I was not you know top four best and so I didn't go to nationals that year it was it was humbling and it was a good lesson and Far from the last time that happened. I mean, that's one of the things about Durango is uh, very rarely can you say you're the fastest here. I mean, even if <laughs> the other, the other uh, this past fall we were, we had a little barbecue and all of the national titles were just hanging out at my house having a barbecue like all of the all of the best riders. And so it doesn't matter who you are, you could have gone to the Olympics a few years ago you're still going to get your ass kicked on the group ride probably. <laughs> and so that's, uh, that's kind of why we're, we're all here. Yeah. Just that, that competition bed that
0: makes you even faster, uh, just being around everybody else.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And everyone has a really good attitude about it. It's not like all of these really successful riders are just at each other's throats, you know, trying to assert themselves all the time. There's plenty of time for that during the actual, uh, race weekends. We're all, we're all buddies and, uh, do a lot off the bike together as well as on the bike.
0: Yeah. So like you're, you're racing for Fort Lewis. I'm assuming things are going pretty well. Like when did you realize that you might have a career in mountain biking?
1: Yeah. You know, boy, that's a big conversation because there's this funny, uh, this funny situation in, in, uh, in mountain biking these days where you have these really big, healthy size pro fields, especially in the Epic Ride Series. I mean, just last weekend in Grand Junction, we had 90 guys on the start line and they're all pretty solid. And the top 20 guys are all really good. And uh, there's, you know, probably 30 of them that are quote unquote making money racing a bike and then 15-ish, maybe 20 that are actually doing it full time. So, you know, that word professional is, is uh is a tricky one because, you know, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean you're racing in a pro race? Or does it mean you're paying all your bills through bikes alone, or does it mean you're paying some of your bills <laughs> through bikes alone? So right. that's a little bit of a, a longer conversation and but I guess to answer your question about Halfway through my collegiate career, I was making money racing my bike, um and theoretically an amount that I could get by on. I mean, we're talking like $12,000 a year, $15,000 a year, and that's when I was like, "Okay, you know, this I I guess I'm a pro mountain biker." And I was definitely saying I was a pro mountain biker, but again, you know, it's sort of like do you want to call $12,000 a year your profession? <laughs> i mean the 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 fact of the matter is there are just very few well paid rides these days period but especially in the united states and to be uh to be in one of those positions is is really um really competitive and so coming up on my senior year and still kind of being in that <laughs> in that uh very below poverty line pay bracket, I was kind of preparing myself to face the music and and uh, and realize, you know, probably a part-time job is what I would need to do to, to keep racing at the level that I wanted to. And I was beginning to make peace with that. But at the same time, this Epic Ride series was really starting to take off. And luckily, sponsors were recognizing that. And then also I was starting to kind of develop some of my own ideas about marketing and what marketing in the cycling industry looks like and could look like. And just, I was, uh, I guess I'm a, a pretty curious person. And so I was just feverishly self-educating myself and kind of um, putting myself through a couple of courses outside of my official ones in college to to help give myself the best shot at actually making this a profession. And I also started working with an agent around that time who really opened my eyes to what was possible, what my value as an athlete could be, some different ways to think about that. And uh, the big, big thing that he instilled in me was he, I I think he asked me, I can't remember how he put it, but he basically asked me, you know, are you a a pro racer? And I said, yeah, of course I'm a pro racer. You know, I make, I make money doing this. He's like, you're not a pro racer. You're not a pro athlete. I was like, what do you mean? And he said, When's the last time you told a sponsor no, or when's the last time you said no to an offer? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I can't remember. Like you kind of get whatever you can. And it's like, exactly. Until you're calling your own shots, you're not a professional. Until you are in a place where you can where you can say, no, I don't need that. I'm going to wait until something better comes down the line. You're not really acting like a professional. So that really changed my mindset and really motivated me. And uh, the story could go a, a, on on for a while. But basically, one of the the tipping points, I guess, is um, in the late summer of 2016, this opportunity came up to go race the Mongolia Bike Challenge and uh, is a very cool, unique event. And one of the events that I was starting to hone in on as something that could be of great value to sponsors and a really good uh, storytelling opportunity which at the end of the day is what racing is. It's just a very, um, very, very specific traditional way of, of, of storytelling for, for marketing purposes. And so I decided basically to to quite, kind of bet everything on this Mongolia Bike Challenge trip, lined up some media for myself, uh, an article or an interview with Outside Magazine. In order to make the the trip work, though, I needed to to dish out about $2,500. And I think to my name at that point, I had like $3,400 saved up or something like that. Right. Yeah. And so basically I was, I was betting everything on this trip to Mongolia, but I kind of had this blueprint in my mind and I thought, you know, this, this is a good direction. Like this, I can see working. This is different, et cetera, et cetera. So I went to Mongolia, had an incredible experience. The story ended up being even crazier than expected. Won the race, got the interview and outside, picked up some new sponsors and that was a tipping point for me and then alongside that long time sponsor orange seal who I've been with since I was 18 I want to say long time basically as long as they've been around they said you know we've really been and and they they had been sponsoring me as a product sponsor and then a paying sponsor but on a smaller level on the jersey and then as a co-title sponsor and finally they said you know what we've been wanting to start a team for a long time and kind of have our own factory team so the timing was just good and so together we kind of launched this new this new Seal off-road team that i ride for to this day and we've got multiple riders now and uh it all worked out and i didn't have to get that part-time job And, and things have things have uh have really come along but yeah it was absolutely touch and go there for, you know, 6 months or so trying to figure out how all this was going to work. <laughs> wow. So was it just like
0: getting that kind of press and that story out after that race that sponsors started to take notice more?
1: Yeah, partly that and then also I kind of put some incentive packages together for myself uh with the pre-existing sponsors that I had basically saying, you know, if I can secure this image with your product in it and it goes in this publication and there's these words associated it's x number of of dollars type thing and so i had that before i left and that was that was kind of the whole thing rather than like go try to have this experience and then tell the story afterward and try to sell it to to sponsors afterward i wanted to line all that up beforehand and really make sure that there was uh, there was some legs to what I was trying to do, but yeah, in large part, I mean, it was just uh, it was an event that racers and non racers could relate to and be interested in, and I think that's really key. Is so often the the race world gets so fixated on just the race world and kind of ostracizes this this greater cycling community, and they forget that the racing world is like. One percent of people that ride mountain bikes or ride bikes, period, and so they're for, they're missing ninety nine percent of the market. Sometimes that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but the I think the the premise holds true. So it was just sort of realizing that there was room to reach out to a broader audience, make a bigger difference, and uh, be of much greater benefit to to sponsors.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's changed a lot in the last few years, especially with social media and stuff, but to where brands look for athletes to sponsor in terms of like, kind of like you did, how you can tell a story rather than just putting their logo on a jersey and getting good results.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you really break it down, the thing I always tell people is, I, I ask them, what is the goal of marketing? And, you know, you get some different answers. But by and large, my my feeling and what you'll read in some of the textbooks is the goal of marketing is differentiation. I mean, you're trying to stand out. You're trying to Explain to a potential buyer, you know, why your product is different and why it's worth their hard earned money versus the competitor. And so when you walk around at, at races, oftentimes you just see a lot of folks copying what's already out there and trying to emulate uh, what they already see. And so you know if you're if you're trying to market on behalf of your sponsors in a race setting and you're copying everybody else you know you're you're defeating the root purpose of marketing you're not getting that differentiation and the i think the reason that some have trouble with that is cuz it's scary to be different i mean it's scary to think outside the box put your hand up and be like yeah what i'm doing is completely or not completely but different in some ways and so I guess that's that's sort of the basic philosophy of some of what uh, we've been trying to do is just truly be different and actually differentiate. Yeah.
0: And so were you still in college when you uh, had this Mongolia bike race?
1: I think so. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I think the way it worked out, so I took a couple semesters off to focus on racing. And so my, my semesters got a little wonky. But yeah, so I went in August, September and uh i want to say is that right maybe no maybe i was just out of college i think i just graduated actually yeah so i was like three or four months out of the co- out of college actually no now that you say that i do remember because i remember i mean the it's funny because that race can sort of be thought of as a little bit of an adventure race in some ways because it's in such a far far flung place yeah but the racing was actually just Insanely competitive. We had uh, this Italian World Cup racer there who podiumed at World Cups. We had uh, a Kona rider who, Corey Wallace, who's won the 24 hour World Championships, and a handful of other, you know, Topic, Ergon pros. So, this lead group of five or six that we had every day was just crazy competitive, and the battles were just insane. And Earlier in the year, I hadn't had any sort of form that would have won that race. But being out of college and having three or four months uninterrupted to train had really helped me lift my game to a new level. And so I had the fitness to win that race. But yeah, anyway, thinking through that now, I am remembering that, yeah, I was just a few months out of college when that happened.
0: And so then you, you've you got this Orange Seal sponsorship secured. And so you can pretty much graduate from college and go into being like a full time athlete,
1: yeah, and and the way we worked it out too, I guess technically speaking, I did have a little bit of a little bit of a part time job because in that first year, the way we structured it is, I helped them run some of their social media stuff. So I was I was working an hour or two a day doing that along with the 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 other racing stuff. So that was a little bit of a transition period, just a you know a good way to to get a little bit of extra. Income just create a little bit more of a buffer, but yeah, but I mean, for all intents and purposes, I was I was racing racing full time at that point.
0: Okay, so you go on your you're racing all these big national races and going across the ocean to do crazy adventure races, uh, doing the epic rides here. But recently, you were inspired to go after the FKT, your fastest known time on the White Rim Trail. Yeah. So, how did the inspiration from that come? Um, just because it's a lot different than uh, the other riding that you're doing.
1: Yeah. So right when I signed with Red Bull March of 2018, my athlete marketing manager at the time, one of the very first things we talked about was this white rim project. And I guess it's a project that they've had in the back of their mind for almost 10 years, but they didn't have the right rider for it. And so once they signed me, they said, "Dude, this is for you. What do you think?" And I said, "Wow, you know that's a that's a pretty big effort <laughs> six six hour time trial." I I don't know many people that would do that voluntarily, but it kind of grew on me. And over the course of the all of 2018, we started planning both the the ride itself and then all the 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 documenting of it. Had a couple setbacks and delays of all kinds, and then uh, we finally got everything together. Spring of 2019. And I mean, there's just there's so much involved with a project like that when you're trying to make a short film. I mean, the the production company, finding the right production company, and securing the budget, and all of the uh, the sponsors that that need to be involved financially to make it happen. Because I don't know if people have a whole lot of reference on this sort of thing, but creating a film is really expensive, really, really expensive. Even when you're just talking in a little ten to twelve minute documentary. So, securing all that funding was a you know a big job anyway, long story short uh we did it March, yeah, late March, and what's funny is you know, I knew of the White Rim, but I'd never done it, knew it was iconic, and Red Bull's premise was basically that it's this big legendary loop that has rumors of fastest known times, but there hadn't really been like a big public like this is the fastest it's been done kind of throw down a gauntlet and and be like hey everybody this is a cool thing you can do and basically make it an invitation and the thinking <laughs> in hindsight it's gotten far more complicated but the thinking was in order to extend that in- invitation and have this fun sort of community wide competition there needed to be some parameters involved so that's why we we decided, you know, there needs to be this standardization route. All of that has been a huge learning process, and we could go into that if you want to. But yeah, I guess, you know, once we started working on it more, I realized that connection with my dad and realized that that white rim ride, which he did back in the 90s, was one of the things that set the hook for him in terms of mountain biking. And so he came back to Central Texas, and he was like, hey, family, there's this crazy thing called mountain biking, and it's awesome, and I think we should all do it together and so then we did as a family. So it was it was kind of poetic in that regard and the film which is coming out very soon will uh it is primarily a father-son story um rather than a, like a whole look how fast this was done story. So yeah, I guess that was that was kind of the the original inspiration there.
0: So you and Red Bull started talking about it like as soon as you sponsored in March of 2018 and then you broke it late March 2019. When did you start training for that?
1: I mean it kind of depends on how you how you define that, but I started doing you know specific long, higher intensity rides probably January, I would say. So a couple months before. There was some stuff we did to focus on the White Rim specifically in terms of preparation, you know, really trying to develop my my threshold sustainable power. Some fueling, you know, experimenting with some fueling tactics and then also just some concentration stuff because, uh, you know, staying focused for a little under six hours is a pretty tall task, it's a long time, yeah, it it really is. I mean, anyone that's done a regular time trial of 20 to 60 minutes or whatever will tell you that, but doing a six hour time trial is pretty wacky,
0: (laughs) yeah. And so, I know, uh, before when I talked to you a few months ago, you had kind of mentioned. Some of the stuff you were doing with Red Bull, are you able to talk about any of that?
1: In terms of the training? Yeah, kind of that fatigue training. Yeah, it sounds funny, but a lot of it is off the bike. We did this high-performance camp last winter, or this past winter, that just involved... It sounds funny, but it just involved our phones, and it's this very in-depth, very challenging app Mm -hmm. that basically takes you through a whole bunch of concentration protocols, challenges, And it's long. I mean, the hardest part is I think it was, I want to say it took an hour. And so you're just sitting in this chair really, really hyper-focused for an hour. And then you get this big score at the end and you're like, man, that was like, (laughs) that completely rung me out and still I have a lot of room for improvement. And then like going straight from from that sort of thing that just sort of rings you out mentally into a reaction time test with this big TV screen and these dots that show up on the screen and you punch them as fast as you can. So just kind of some some stuff like that. Stuff that probably looks uh, I don't know, somewhat like NASA astronaut type stuff, but it in the scheme of things, I think anyone could go out and do and and, and buy. But yeah, some some really cool stuff that just generally helped with with focus and, and mental fatigue.
0: Yeah, did it feel like it made a difference? Like, were you able to keep your focus for longer in the
1: ride? It, you know, it's hard to say, like, this definitely helped that. But I will say that that was some of the fastest five hours and 45 minutes I've ever had in my life, just in terms of how time seemed to, to float by. I was a little worried about how you know I'd be in the zone and then come out of the zone, and there'd be you know hours in the middle that were a big struggle. But I was just locked in the whole time, and uh, even when I had a, a little mechanical issue partway through, d- it didn't really disrupt my concentration. I just immediately went to okay, fix this issue, and move on. And the only part where I really came out of my focus maybe was in the last hour or so when I really started struggling with some cramping issues going up uh, that last major climb, the Schaefer climb, yeah. and just really fell apart physically and was in 100% survival mode. I mean, to that point, i have been pedaling at between 260 and 320 watts, somewhere around there. And in the last 30 minutes, which should have been the easiest to maintain good power on, uh, I was having trouble holding 220 because the the cramps were so bad, and I was just so destroyed. <laughs> Those last 30 to 60 minutes was kind of the only, uh, I'd say the only time period where maybe I fell apart a little bit mentally. But it was, if anything, I was just really falling apart physically. Like, they're just, my mind could only do so much at that point. <laughs> yeah. And so what's your pace?
0: Like, is that is like 16 or 17 miles an hour for...
1: Yeah, I guess the average speed... I honestly can't remember exactly. I think average speed was 17.3, 17.6, 17, point something. Yeah.
0: That's so fast. What were the logistics like with planning it? I mean, as far as like planning for weather, planning for fueling, water, bathroom breaks, being at certain points in the course.
1: Yeah. So that was one of the biggest challenges is we originally had these grand schemes of like all right, we're going to have a helicopter and we're going to film the entire thing. And there's going to be like seven dirt bikes and four wheelers out there. And, uh, you know, not a single second is going to be missed in terms of filming potential. And then the national park was like, yeah, no, you're not doing that. So we actually had, uh, some pretty significant challenges in terms of securing the film permits to the point where we had to completely adjust the way we shot the film, uh, and basically what ended up happening is we shot basically exclusively outside the national park. So 20 miles of this, eh, 20, 30 miles of this route is uh, is on BLM land instead of national park land. And so we got most of the shooting there. And so some of the blowback we got was, oh, you know, I thought this was self-supported. It looks like there's a truck with him the whole time with film crews. And like, that's not really, that's not really self-supported. And for one, they never touched me. That was one of the rules. We had no, we couldn't physically interact at all. And I didn't even want to talk to him. You know, I was in my zone. And I actually yelled at him a couple of times like, you know, get out, (laughs) you're you're in my way. But that was only for maybe 20 miles of the whole thing. And then for 70 to 80, I didn't see a soul other than uh, they planted one stationary guy with a camera out on a climb. And so I saw him for like a total of, 30 seconds, and then obviously the other riders that were just out enjoying enjoying the course, the the usual, you know, multi-day, multi-day riders. So that that's one logistical component, I guess. Uh, in terms of weather, weather was one of the biggest stressors. Man, I'll tell you, going into this thing was one of the most stressful – I mean, it felt like I was going into like an, a national championships defense or something. Like the amount of pressure was absurd because I knew the number of dollars – that was being invested i knew that the the uh the current at the time record holder or who we were pretty sure was the record holder andy durai had done a really good time uh and part of the chat one of the challenges is he did slightly different routing i mean obviously he rode the same same loop but he his start and end point was different than ours and that's a whole other conversation that we can get into if you want but I knew basically his. I was going to have to go really, really, really hard to beat his time, and so uh, failure was a hundred percent an outcome I thought was possible, and so that was that was stressful. We filmed for like from you know before sunrise until long, long after the sun went down for three or four days leading right up to the event. So I didn't get any real riding for four days before the event, but I got super exhausted because that's just how filming goes. Yeah, We weren't filming on the White Rim itself, but we were doing a lot of filming back in Durango. So there were a lot of things that weren't ideal. And then the biggest thing at the time mentally was they were just getting hammered by rain. And so we drove some of the route two days before and we were in a Toyota Tacoma and uh, we got it stuck. Like the mud was so bad that we couldn't even drive the thing. We drove like 4 miles and had to turn around and barely got out. I was like, "Well, this is not happening in March of 2019. Like we're going to have to postpone this thing again." Luckily, it dried out just enough that um we were able to do it. And you know, I think at the end of the day, the conditions ended up being about as good as they could be because there is a lot of sand out there that can get super soft, and so that was nicely packed in, which made it way faster. But on the flip side, there were some some mud holes, so I got into a little bit of mud and, and, you know, some extra weight got added to the bike because of that, just with mud getting, getting stuck on the bike. I think at the end of the day, it was kind of six one way, half a dozen the other, but that was definitely one of the other challenges and, and leading up to the actual effort, major stress points. Yeah. I mean, even in March, the
0: weather at Moab can be pretty dicey. I mean, was March just like kind of a way to be like, okay, it's definitely not going to be like blazing hot at that time.
1: Yeah, I mean it was a temperature thing, and then it was also just from my schedule standpoint, like the time to do it. Because throughout the summer, I have so many events, and an effort this big puts such a hole in your in your training that it was really it was really the only place we could put it, other than like late fall. And we knew we didn't want to wait that long uh, because, and uh, I can say this now because. Uh, <laughs> I assume this won't be airing until it comes out, but part of the project was launching a new trek bike, and the timing of that needed to needed to coincide so that was another reason yeah that's a
0: good a good story for them to have on that bike when they release it then
1: yeah, exactly i mean that was that was one of the main motivators, and one of the reasons that the project was even possible was was trek's funding, and trek's funding was pretty much Contingent on me using <laughs> this new bike, right, can you talk a little bit about
0: like the morning before you start like what's going through your head uh at what time are you getting up, like how you're prepping your bike, everything that's going on?
1: yeah, so I really didn't know what to expect in regards to how I would feel morning of night before all that sort of thing. I thought, ah, oh, you know this is just uh this is just a uh, it's not actually a race, you know there's no number plate, there's not that many people out there. Watching in in hindsight, it was funny. People started picking up on what we were doing, and so there actually was like a crowd at the finish, which was kind of cool. Not a crowd, okay. a, a handful of people, plus you know, my dad, my team manager, mechanic, film folks, all that sort of thing. So there there was a decent little welcome party, but. I was so much more stressed out about this thing than I ever would have guessed. I mean, I did not sleep the night before. And again, it kind of went back to just, I knew, I knew how much I'd put into it. And then I knew how much all of my sponsors and everybody else had put into it. I knew how much it cost. I knew the, um, responsibility I was being given by being the one to kind of showcase this new bike. And, you know, I wanted to do do Trek proud there. So there was a, I I was putting a huge amount of expectation on myself and everyone was good about saying, you know, you know, if it doesn't work out, that's fine. There's still a storyline here. But yeah, I mean, it was still, still challenging mentally from that standpoint. So um, when I woke up that morning, having not slept much, it felt like a race day. Absolutely. And so I, I, and we kind of decided the best way to do it was to treat it just like any other race day. So my team manager and mechanic was there. Uh, we had the, the Orange Seal Off-Road team team area set up like we would for a regular race. He took care of my bike like we would for a regular race. And in that way, I was able to uh, think about the effort probably in a little bit more relaxed way eventually because it just felt like the normal routine. Sure. So yeah, I just followed my regular morning routine of of waking up. Two and a half, three hours before the effort, had my usual pre race breakfast of, of eggs and toast. And uh yeah. Went for went for a drive up to the white rim and dropped in, and went really hard for five hours and forty-five minutes.
0: <laughs> How are you setting up your bike for that? Like I mean, do you still have like CO two pump tools on you, all that?
1: Yeah, and there will there will be photos of that very soon. But yeah, basically it was, uh, you know, bike fairly normal race bike setup, CO two tire plugs, tools, a tool which I actually ended up needing. Yeah, I mean a fairly. I guess the only real unusual thing is uh, I wrote some pacing notes on my top tube, some checkpoints. So I I really studied Andy Duray's record and uh, knew. Where I needed to be, uh, to be ahead of his or to be on pace because I mean, pacing a 20 to 30 minute time trial is challenging. Basically, everybody goes out too hard. Yeah. But pacing a 100 mile time trial and knowing that you have this really hard category one climb to finish the day with really required some disciplined pacing. Um, and so I, I had that written on my top tube. Uh, and, you take one or two water bottles out with you? Yeah. So I took two and that was one of the biggest points of debate or not debate, but just conversation was no one could believe I did it on, on two bottles. For one, the bottles were really tall. They're, they're taller than just about anybody thinks of in terms of a bottle. They were 26 ounces each. And, uh, I, I prehydrated like like crazy, so so much so that you know, in hindsight, if I were to ever do it again, I I would probably do that part a little bit differently. I would drink less before and take a third bottle with me, because I actually had to stop, or no, I didn't stop, but I I peed mid uh, mid effort, yeah, like three hours in. So yeah, the the two bottle thing was was uh, a very kamikaze strategy, <laughs> but when you look. Historically, at, at FKT efforts, uh, regardless of, of what type, I'm not talking mountain bikes, you know, mountaineering, climbing, whatever, they're, they're speed runs. It's, a, it's an all out, just like dash. And so you make decisions to maximize speed. Uh, and sometimes that means, you know, having nothing to drink for the last hour, which is uncomfortable. Wow. Yeah. And means you get to the finish line dehydrated. A bit, but you know, spending the last ten minutes of the of the effort potentially a little bit dehydrated was something I was willing to do in the name of carrying around you know three, four, five extra pounds in fluids earlier in the effort. Yeah, and then what's your fueling like? Like, how often
0: are you eating during the the attempt?
1: Very often, very often. So we sh- we shot for. 250 to 350 calories an hour, which is on the high side. But because I've done so many miles, so many training rides at this point, I'm pretty good at processing food while riding. So tons and tons of, of goo gels, tons and tons of goo chews. Uh, I ate a couple bars. But yeah, basically just tore through calories. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. And those are all like in the back pockets of your jerseys. So you're just munching as you ride 17 miles
1: an hour. Yeah, yeah. So I had this really cool Velocity skin suit custom made by Valet. Basically, what they did is they took a, a medium bottom and sewed it to a small top of their, of their typical skin suit. So it was just extra, extra arrow. And they've got these really nice three big pockets in the back that really stretch. And so I was able to stuff just a ton in my pockets.
0: Okay. Yeah. So overall, entirely self-supported, nobody's handing you food on the go or?
1: No, no. I mean, literally no one even touched me. And if, if they talked to me, I pretty much didn't hear them too. Cause I was blasting some pretty, uh, pretty hype music most of the time nice. until my headphones died. But yeah. Yeah. And what's funny is when when that story first came out that was published to Pinkbike, you know, it was a complete oversight on our part, but we never really mentioned that it was self-supported because it was so like self-evident to us that that was the only way to do it. Sure. And we just kind of got crucified by some people because they would see the, you know, see a photo with a truck with Cameras sticking out the truck, and they're like, "Oh my god, this guy—he just drafted the truck the whole time, and like, he was getting handed Sonic slushes out the window." <laughs> <laughs> and it's just funny what people assume. It's like, heck no! Like that is so not the spirit of what we were trying to do. Yeah, very much self-supported, and to me, that's the only way to do one of these things. I mean, we wanted to make it as relatable as possible, so that the broadest audience could could uh, appreciate it. And you know if I was, it it looked. Granted, being in a skin suit makes it so that a certain number of people are going to be like, huh, I can't really relate to that. Sure, but you know if if we'd done it supported, and I'd just been getting handed food and water out the window, it just wouldn't have felt right. I mean, that's not that's not mountain biking to me. So yeah, that's why we did it. Did it self supported. And the FKT that you were trying
0: to beat with is it Andy Duray? Yeah. Was his self-supported? Yes. Okay. Yep. So yeah, I mean, it makes sense to go out and...
1: I don't know of many people that have done it or that do it supported from like a single day standpoint. I mean, there's lots of... The most common way to ride the White Rim is to do it in three or four days and supported. You know, a lot of beer along the way, a lot of tasty food along the way. You do it like a river trip, basically. Yeah. Which is awesome. But doing like a, a speed attempt supported would just logistically be a complete nightmare because there are areas where you can go faster on a mountain bike, which I think is really cool. Actually, one of my good buddies, uh, Chris Blevins, who's one of the top racers in the country, went out just like four days after me and did it supported primarily as a training ride. But he had some buddies that had a, a Ford Raptor and basically they were handling handing him bottles and food out out of this Ford Raptor. But he dropped the truck like two thirds of the way through by a lot. And so he really? spent a while yeah, he spent a while without bottles and eventually had to stop and wait a couple minutes, I guess, for them to catch up so he could get food and water. So uh No kidding. Yeah. So the supported thing can kinda cut both ways. Um I, of course you could do it faster supported, but you would have to be so ridiculously dialed, um, to make it work logistically that, I don't know, I just think it would be way more hassle than it was worth. Yeah.
0: Well, and there you go. Like bikes are
1: the ultimate off-road vehicle. (laughs) Totally. I mean the, you're just ripping past Jeeps sometimes out there and that's the best feeling in the world. Like I am a hundred percent under my own power and I'm just like, smobbing past you right now yeah
0: that's so awesome (laughs) it's a cool feeling so yeah you're talking about the attempt for a year you train for months you go out and crush it with the attempt to standardize this fkt route and then it's like two weeks ago quinn simmons another rider from durango goes out beats your time but with the old version of the route yeah yeah so what's your take on that
1: yeah, you know that's been a. It's been such a conversation point. This whole project has been a huge learning experience for for me. Starting way, way before the actual ride. I mean, learning about how to budget my time, how much to focus on. You know, the physical preparation versus filming the physical preparation. Yeah, the production company we worked with are experts and they make unbelievably beautiful award-winning films, but that also takes a huge amount of work. And so kind of like I alluded to early on, um, in this conversation, there were days where, uh, I was just, a, uh, I was just like grinding out these long, long filming days and it really wasn't good preparation for the actual ride. And so I learned a lot about balance there and, the the film was absolutely worth it. And I'm I, I'm glad that we did it the way we did. But in hindsight I learned a lot about balance in that regard and, and all that sort of thing. And I'm sure at some point I'll go back out to the White Rim and give it another rip and not tell anybody, uh, yeah. beforehand and not document it in any way and just do it a hundred percent pure just for me type effort. Sure. But that wasn't the goal of this project. So I mean, all that was a learning point, and then just the whole, um, the whole standardization versus non-standardization has been a learning opportunity. What's funny is there's been so much back and forth about, yeah, you know, a competition, a, a, competi- a quote-unquote competition like this should have some rules, and then the other side is saying like, no, this is public land; it's a loop. You should be able to do whatever the heck you want. Which, I mean, that's also very true. And what's funny is. I mean, everyone's got an opinion on it. And the route that we decided to do actually wasn't my first choice. My first choice was to do it the way Quinn did it, because I think just about anyone would opt to do a major climb first when you're fresh, rather than saving it for mile 90. And honestly, in some ways, like that was an absolute death nail for me, because I was cramping like crazy on that thing and just bleeding time left and right. And so... I I wanted to do it the way the way Quinn ended up doing it and the way that Andy originally did it. But in the many months leading up to this project, we went back and forth and and got the opinions of of lots of established people both in the cycling world and then also from other FKT worlds. And over time, I was convinced to do it from this other spot. Yeah. And the goals there were A, it's the way that most people that just ride it, regardless of how fast they're trying to do, do it because it's the most accessible and it's the way it's, it's guided, uh, typically. And for that reason, it's kind of more quote unquote relatable. And then from a, from a logistical standpoint, it's easier. You can get down Schaefer with just about any kind of car, but it's a pretty intimidating drive. I mean, the, the exposure is, is about as gnarly as it gets I mean it by the definition it's canyon lands I mean it's it's thousands of feet off a cliff if you if you mess up and there are cars that you can see on that road that have pitched over the edge oh no yeah so it was our thinking that if a goal is getting more people out here enjoying the loop we want to showcase the way that most people are likely to ride it and most people aren't as likely to drive all the way down to the bottom of Schaefer for the extra X number of minutes that it will give you um, as you try, try to do it as fast as you can. So anyway, that was kind of the thinking there. You know, in hindsight, I'm still not really decided on it all. I'm still kind of taking it all in. It's been interesting how fired up some people have gotten. I think some people just don't want to see this ultimate playground of freedom have any sort of rules associated with it at all which i completely understand and the i guess what what we could have done a better job of is expressing this as the invitation it is and the option it is rather than some sort of obligation so by that i mean the whole point of of doing it the way we did is like hey guys here's an option that's going to make it easier for us to keep track of fastest times. And I personally, I love analytics. And so I thought having a Strava route where we can compare, because I knew eventually the record would be broken for sure, for for a whole bunch of reasons. And I, I knew that it would be cool to, on Strava or whatever other software, be able to be like, all right, so... Here's where Quinn or Chris or Howard or whoever went, like they started to pull away, and then here's where I gained time back, and just have that comparison because you can do that that sort of comparison, you know, with the amazing platforms we have now. And so personally, I thought you know that'd be a really cool component. Um, and then the other aspect of this is I looked at an event like the Leadville 100 and its success, and so much of its of its success is dependent on everyone in a massive spectrum of abilities doing the exact same route and being able to compare themselves. And so if, you know, (laughs) a certain number of people at the Leadville 100 were starting at the bottom of the power line climb and doing that first and then doing the rest of the course and having that be their start finish. And then a certain number of people hitting that power line climb at mile 70 which I have never done without cramping because you've done Columbine and all these other things. And it's, I mean, doing that climb at mile 70 is very close to impossible to, to clean it. That was kind of the thinking is like, all right, here, if we, if some of us agree to do this in the same way, then a lot of other people are regardless of ability are going to be able to go out and say like, all right, well, it took me nine and a half hours but I can compare, you know, apples to apples that this was nine and a half hours and whoever else did it in 540, 545, or whatever. So that was kind of the the motivation there. And I guess where I'm going with this is it we could have done a better job of saying like this is an option. Like you can do whatever you want. Obviously, it's national parkland. And so I really don't fault Quinn at all. Like he identified a way to do it that was best for him. And he covered the full hundred miles faster than I did, uh, in a slightly different way than I did. Um, but that's completely his you know, his jurisdiction. So yeah, I guess I'm still kind of conflicted on it. I I I wouldn't change anything because we put so much thought into what we did. Um and people are still divided. I mean, it sounds like Chris Blevins is gonna do it from the top there the way I did. Sounds like Keegan may give it a shot from where Quinn did. So our maybe our thinking was a little flawed and, and maybe we didn't quite get it right, but the the intent was pure. And when we were out there riding at a more leisurely pace a couple weeks later, an amateur rider, amateur rider, I'm such a racer, a non-pro rider, just a normal rider, came through and, and saw us and he said, oh, you know, I'm out here because of the project. And he was excited that we'd sort of created this quote-unquote course like this is the start and finish because he felt like he was a, he was on the same journey that I had been on so that that's what we'd been going for so there's going to be some people that feel that and appreciate that and then plenty of other people who don't agree with it and, and that's fine
0: yeah and I mean it sounds like I mean I know I talked to you ahead of it but you guys had talked to other communities and as far as FKT attempts like they're all sort of on board with like being like hey this is a standardized route and then there's You know, you set a time, and then it creates competition for other people to compete with it on that on that route. Like, is that the norm for these other communities?
1: It varies, and I think there's there's uh, there's just kind of philosophical differences too. I mean, my the thing I see most often. So, it's most popular in the running world, and the ultra running world, and the uh, and the mountaineering world. And I mean, if you look at uh, what's an example, I guess the Colorado trail race, for example, there are, it's a point to point. And so there's a, there's a record from Durango to Denver and a record from Denver to Durango. There's, there's two separate records there, which I think is interesting. That's a little bit different cause it's a, it's a point to point. Um, or take the, uh, the rim to rim to rim in the grand Canyon, um, same sort of thing. And it, it's it's uh, it's tricky because, you know, by definition, these are just constructs. I mean, they're just – the UCI isn't out there with a clipboard and a stopwatch. Right. Um, and so in some ways, that's what makes it cool. And in other ways, there, you get pushback because people are like, why are you trying to make this a race? It never should be a race. Yeah, But pe- people are competitive. And I think uh, – it gets more conversation going. And that's why I'm not like, even though I did receive a fair amount of criticism for the, the debate that Quinn and I created, I'm not necessarily bummed out about that because it created so much more conversation. And I just think it's a cool, it's a cool thing to do. I mean, I was by far from being the first to do a mountain bike FKT, obviously I think Andy Durye had one of the more famous ones to date, but it's now gaining a lot of traction because of uh, this project we did. And I'm excited about that aspect. I think uh, there's potential for a lot of other really cool FKT options out there. And there's such a wide array. I mean, you have everything from your neighborhood Strava segment that's 30 seconds long to uh, the Tour Divide, which is like 13 days. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. But I guess to distill it down there's still not really regardless of sport like a really accepted by everybody thing. There's always going to be a little bit of of gray area and a little bit of mystery surrounding all of it. I mean even Killian Jornet's uh fastest known, known time on Everest, you know, there's some a little bit of debate on that, you know, so it's uh it's just kind of the the nature of the beast, I think. Yeah, it sounds like a
0: a looser, more unorganized way to create competition and to actually get out to these places.
1: Yeah, and at the end of the day, and it's so hard to convince people of this being the case before the film actually comes out, but the the time and the speed component was just that. It was a component. It was part of it. It was kind of the cherry on top. It was a vehicle to create more interest and intrigue and excitement and to showcase... What I'm capable of showcase what the equipment that I use is capable of, but it was far from like the storyline, yeah, and I, that that will become clearer uh, when the film comes out. but I think that's that's an important part to note is of course, the competitor in me loves the aspect of trying to go faster than anyone has, but it's simply a vehicle by way of sharing mountain biking with more people, getting more people excited about this special part of the world, and just creating an appreciation for our public lands, living a healthy lifestyle, all that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Are there any other FKTs you have your eyes on?
1: Yes, but if I learned anything from the White Rim, it's that maybe maybe don't point for the fences. like. Eight months out, <laughs> maybe keep your cards a little closer to your vest. But uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I've, I've I have some ideas of things, nothing that high profile at this point, but uh, and, and nothing that will have the the production value of, of this white Rim film for the time being. But there are certainly some point to point, <laughs> quote unquote, FKTs that um, I have my eye on that I certainly don't have time or energy for anytime soon because of the actual race season. But I think come, come this fall, I'll probably try to take a swing at another one that, that looks pretty cool.
0: Nice. And how's the rest of the year look for you? What races do you have on your calendar?
1: Unfortunately, I don't think I'm going to be able to do the Iron Horse this weekend because of this nasty flu that I'm still getting over. But, um, I'm hoping to do Dirty Kansas uh, June 1st. That's you know, just barely over a week out, uh, that's going to be a little touch and go. Yeah. If I do end up racing, it's certainly going to be with a little bit more open mind about performance just because the past seven days have been completely, you know, wiped clean in terms of training, unfortunately. But, um, I'm going to take a little break after that, go visit my sister in England, uh, and then come back, get in a couple weeks of good training then go to the Carson City Off-Road, then to BC Bike Race, which will be a first for me. Something I'm very excited about. Sweet, yeah. Cross-country Short Track Nationals. Oz Trails Off-Road is in there. Uh, Leadville 100, again, for sure. SBT Gravel. A couple other kind of miscellaneous events. And then uh, uh, we're going to go over to Israel for Epic Israel, which is a, an S1 stage race. Yeah, so a little under halfway through the season, probably. So plenty... Plenty left to get after. Yeah,
0: and another busy, busy summer for you, racing and traveling and getting to some cool places.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm really, really excited for this big road trip that's coming together between the Carson City Off-Road and the BC Bike Race. Rather than fly to uh, to Carson City, I'm going to drive out there and uh, race Carson City, kind of wind my way up towards Vancouver. Uh, stop along the way and knock out some podcasts of my own, race BC bike race, and then kind of wind my way back towards Durango over the course of five to seven days, hitting up a bunch more really cool people for podcasts and hopefully having some sweet experiences along the way also. Uh, So I'm really looking... I think it's going to be like a 60-hour total driving, a little under 4,000 miles over the course of... Tank, yeah. Yeah, over the course of, uh, I think like three weeks, four weeks, but yeah, it's going to be super, super cool. Great racing, but also all the stuff in between the racing should be pretty sweet as well. Yeah. Cause you use your van a lot to travel between races, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty modded out. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. You know, it makes a really good command central on race weekend. And then also, I mean, rather than fly to all the races, a couple of years ago, I was like, you know what? I'm tired of flying over the Grand Canyon and being like, man, that'd be sweet to go to the Grand Canyon someday. Yeah. Uh, so I said, you know what? I'm just going to drive to more races. So there are some races, like if I have a race in the Midwest one weekend and then a race in California the next weekend, it doesn't really make sense to drive to those. So I do end up flying to plenty of races still. But whenever I can, I I do drive uh, because having I found that having these experiences between the actual races are really, really special too, and something that I think I'd really regret missing once I finally do retire,
0: yeah, and it saves you from having to pack up your bike and scram to an airport to try and
1: make it on time <laughs> totally yeah, yeah, and it's sort of like I'm so familiar with the van space now that it almost feels like another room in the house, and so you know when I pull up to a race rather than being in some unfamiliar hotel room every time, uh, it feels like I'm in another room in my house and there's a certain level of ease and tranquility that comes along with that. Yeah. A little bit of home comfort. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Awesome. Well, that is all we have for you this week. Payson, thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me, Matt.
0: It's at Payson McElvin for your Instagram. Yes. Okay. And Payson also has a new podcast out. He's got a lot of really great guests so that's in all podcast apps
1: yes i believe so for sure itunes and spotify okay yeah and then on his website it's not my my name isn't actually on the podcast it's uh the adventure stash
0: the adventure stash right and you'll know because it's like a cartoon sketch of you with a giant mustache
1: yeah exactly exactly yeah pretty
0: funny awesome if you are enjoying our podcast, be sure to rate us in the iTunes app, subscribe, join our email list. That's all we've got for you this week. We'll talk to you again next week.